Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Use Guys in That podcast. We have the great honor uh, of having Scott Horton, the author of Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, the great Ron Paul, the Scott Horton Show interviews from 2004 to 2019, and enough already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. I wanted to uh, just quickly, if you wouldn't mind for our listeners who may not know, like what is the modern, I guess, the contemporary history of like imperial intervention in uh, in Afghanistan? Maybe going back to like the British Raj all the way up into the current quagmire that we're in. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I uh, my my uh, book about Afghanistan really starts in, you know, the late 1970s and early 1980s. And of course, yeah, it's kind of the crossroads of multiple empires, the Russians and the British and the Mongols and the whoever fighting over access to the Indian subcontinent there uh, through the Khyber Pass and all that going back to antiquity. But I'm no expert on that stuff. Uh, what would you say, like, what was the origin of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan? Well, to boil it down, basically, the sock puppet dictator that they had in power at the time was doing a really lousy job and essentially was too communist and was forcing too much of a right wing and religious kind of reaction against his rule and creating a civil war. So when the Soviets intervene, essentially, the first thing they did, I think on the second day, was take him out back and shoot him in the head and replace him. And so, you know, that was their problem. Now. What's interesting about all this from our point of view, you know, over here as Americans, is that about uh, half a year before that, in July of 1979, Jimmy Carter's government decided to begin to back the resistance against the communist government there in order to try to provoke a Soviet intervention. They hoped that by weakening or, you know, uh, threatening the Kabul regime that the Soviets would then invade to reinforce it, which is essentially what happened. I mean, they did a, a replacement of the guy, but they kept the regime in power, you know? And so, um, but I caution that uh, real experts like Eric Margulies say that American support for the Mujahideen in late 79 was essentially marginal and did not have much to do with the Soviet uh, decision to invade. Um, and so, but the point kind of stands the same anyway. Why would the Americans do that? They were doing that because they were trying to get the Russians to invade for the purpose of, as they put it at the time, giving them their own Vietnam. Since Vietnam was this horrible no-win quagmire of a decade-long war that we wish we hadn't had done, that broke the bank and destabilized society back home, well, maybe we could do that to the Soviets. In fact, since the Americans had the Vietnam syndrome, which meant the mental illness of not wanting to wage more proxy wars against the Russians, that maybe instead of containment, we'll bait them into overexpansion. Mm. And which might have been their strategy all along, honestly. You know, it's not like communism works very well. You could argue <laughs> that containing the Soviet Union all that time helped to prop them up in power. Whereas if we'd encourage them to back all the revolutions back in the 1980s, they're backing revolutions in Africa, in Latin America, invading Afghanistan. This is a big part of what finally broke the bank and destroyed the Soviet Union. And that was the strategy. And then, of course, the irony jumps right out at you that if we were trying to bait the Soviets into invading Afghanistan to give them their own Vietnam, then what does it mean when we invade Afghanistan and fight a 20 year long war in that very same country and to know, you know, even really describable end goal, right? But just to keep on fighting because or else one day things will be worse is the excuse to stay. And what it is, is it's a horrible no-win quagmire that breaks the bank and divides the society back home and is disruptive for all the same reasons that they did it to the Soviets deliberately back then. Excellent. Here's a question for you. Do you feel that tribal, based on your studies and based on, all the information you put together in the books that you've written. Do you feel that tribal identity is far more important than Islamic solidarity between the different peoples of Afghanistan? Uh, I mean, probably. Yeah. Uh, it's not everything. And, and you know how you define tribe and nation and ethnicity and all of that varies, but you know, one of the major ethnic religious minorities in Afghanistan are the Hazaras who are Shiites. 
Mm-hmm. And then I know that the um, the Taliban are under a sect. Uh, uh, um, I don't know if that's the proper term for it. Uh, uh, lower division of Sunni Islam called Hanafi rights, which is their tradition based on the teachings of scholar X from way back when, whatever it was. Um, now, whether that's the predominant strain of Sunni Islam that's dominant among the Tajiks and the Uzbeks in the north, I don't know. But you can have all kinds of different divisions, even you know within the, the same larger groups of Islam. Like there are, for example, what? I don't know, 50 or 100 different kinds of Protestant Christians in the United States, for example. You can have all different kinds of Sunnis and all different, I don't know, not all different kinds of Shiites, but some different kinds of Shiites at least. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, as far as, you know, competing interests in the country, what keeps people united or divided? It seems like it has a lot more to do with town and country than anything else where you have people who live in, in the city who are exposed to international media and money and different people from all around the world. It is, as we talked about, kind of the crossroads of, you know, Southern Central Asia, essentially, for all these different groups coming through there. And so people who live in Kabul their whole life have a vastly different experience from people living out in the countryside in the Helmand province. You know, parts of, of uh, say, for example, uh, of eastern Afghanistan, where you have, you know, where it's very mountainous. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had, I've talked to people who describe from valley to valley to valley that these are essentially separate nations with their own completely different dialects from each other, completely different histories. They're totally isolated. They have no electricity, no exposure. They've never heard of the old world before. So when the Americans come through, they say, oh, the Russians, you know, we, here you are again. And they go, the Russians, but well, geez, the Russians have been gone for 20 years. And we're here, you know, to help you and things. And they go, what's the difference between you and a Russian anyway? Well, we're from America. What's America? Yeah. Uh, and, and, um, and I mean, and I've heard that one over and over again, Americans mistaken for Russians over and over again. I talked with, um, this uh, great uh, former British intelligence, uh, naval intelligence officer was stationed in the Helmand province. And he said, when you tell the people in the Helmand province that the reason we're here is because some Arabs crashed a plane into a building in a village called New York in a valley far away from here, they say, what the hell has that got to do with me? And it doesn't have anything to do with them at all, right? They've never seen an Arab before in their life. They've never heard of this village, New York, in a valley far away in their life. How could they be culpable? How could we be killing their people over something that they don't have even a kernel of truth of the slightest semblance of anything to do with whatsoever? It ain't fair. Nope. No, it certainly isn't. Not at all. Um, I wanted to ask you about this, if you wouldn't mind, for our listeners. Could you describe what Pashtun Wali is and how important it is in the culture? Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's kind of a mess. If you look at um, foolsaron.us is the website for my first book, Fools Aaron. And we have really great maps there. Um, in fact, um, I think you find these also at the, the uh, page for the new book, Enough Already, at the Libertarian Institute site. If you page down got these really great detailed maps from a guy named Michael Izadi that shows the ethnic and the sectarian splits. And, and it, you can just see from the map where the Pashtuns, and they are somewhat spread throughout Afghanistan, but they're especially dominant in the south and the east of the country. And this is a society that goes back for, I don't know, however many thousands of years uninterrupted. They've been occupied at various times but really just the cities are occupied and the countryside stays the countryside. So this Pashtun Wali code is essentially one of the most back ass word type tribal honor code, religion type, you know, set of customs that you can find in the world. Now, some of it is very like honorable and respectable, although even to the nth degree where it's not respectable anymore, like one thing is, and I don't know how badly this is enforced, but this is what they call it. um, That, if a guest is seeking refuge at your home, you're supposed to give up your own daughter or son before you're supposed to give up the guest seeking refuge. And this is part of a custom. This is bad lands where these people come from. This is 
it ain't fun to be alone out there. Right. So that's where these kind of customs come from is you let the beggar in, you let the person seeking refuge in that kind of honor but it's taken seriously to a degree, like in Japan with the honor code there, where it's almost just irrational, the degree that of obedience that has to be paid to these traditions. And so one of the things that Anand Gopal writes about in his book, it's called, it's really a great book. I, I really uh, highly suggest everybody look at it. It's called no good men among the living, which is a Afghan saying. Um, and anyway, in there, he talks about how the Hanafi rights style Islam, which is a pretty, you know, kind of ancient tradition, a, a very ancient interpretation of Islam, right? They're not the Sufis. They're not the most, you know, enlightened and westernized types at all. But their religious code, is far more what we would call progressive and enlightened compared than the Pashtun Wali code that it replaces. So for example, under the Pashtun Wali code, women essentially have no rights whatsoever. But in Islam, that's not the law at all. And under, under even this Hanafi rights, pretty backwards, you know, comparable to Wahhabi type Islam, Women have the right to own property, to inherit property, and then to be able to also sell it if that's their choice and this kind of thing. And that might sound like not much, but actually that's the first step of, of you know, that's, that's the second step from they own themselves. They're allowed to own something else, right? This is, we're, we're trying to, to get somewhere here. And it, so at this point, you know, the, the warlords that America chooses to back are either just outright criminals uh, who are uh, more oppressive in their own way than the Taliban in terms of crimes that they commit against people, or there's, you know, basically just lawlessness and reversion back to these tribal codes. And so in other words, probably not if you're from Kabul and, and maybe not if you're from, you know, another provincial capital in the country. But if you're from out in the countryside in the Helmand province or in the Kandahar province or in the Nangarhar province, you might be better off. Women might be much better off under the Taliban than under the cultural code that they've inherited from their ancestors there. This is actually progress. And in fact, you know, I mean, and I ain't here to spin for the Taliban. They're bastards. And I think it's perfectly fair to expect the worst after America leaves that they're going to take advantage of the power we have left them in a very strong position we could have left a long time ago when they weren't in such a strong position but we've been steadily losing and losing and losing for better than 10 years now and they're in a very strong position and they very well could i, I expect them to abuse their power as much as they can what the hell at the same time though they've been negotiating with women as negotiating partners on the side of the afghan government for years now in different settings and they've made various degrees of promises about a new future for that kind of thing. And ultimately, it's just not up to us. Other than, I guess I'll go ahead and say this, because this is a thing that I think that I kind of don't like it because it sounds all like a very kind of first world imperialist sort of a point of view. But what the hell? I'm, I'm renouncing empire at the time. I mean, my whole kind of point is if you look at Iraq, Syria, Libya, Afghanistan, um, for that matter, Saudi Arabia, uh, Somalia. The worst thing that's happening in all these countries is the violence that our government and society have brought to them. The very worst thing. Which means then that we're not in a very good position to lecture them about their lack of libertarianism when it comes to how people are treated in their society, right? So in other words, if Ron Paul had won in 88, and Harry Brown had won in 96, and we had nothing but great libertarians in there with a non-interventionist foreign policy this whole time. And everybody, you know, Harry Brown giving his Statue of Liberty speech every day about how people don't care about liberty enough or whatever, then we wouldn't be blood-soaked hypocrites. And then we'd be in a much better position to, yes, absolutely condemn Kurdish and Somali society, for example, for their female genital mutilation. This isn't the seventh century anymore, sickos, or the Pashtun society in Afghanistan, where for some reason, out of all the cultures in the world, these are the only guys who could never figure it out, and they screw each other's sons. 
instead of each other's sisters. Well, what in the hell? Everyone else on earth figured that out, you idiots. And yet we can't sit here and laugh them off the face of the earth for that and ridicule them into stopping that kind of thing because the worst thing about their society is not that, it's the humans being torn apart with high explosives. If you could believe it, even worse than the mass child rape is the mass death rain from above by largely defined us. In Pakistan, they'll kill you for converting to Christianity. In Saudi Arabia, they'll cut your head off for witchcraft if you fall out of line with the wrong prince. Right? Um, in, in virtually all of these places, there's plenty to criticize about how they don't live up to our Declaration of Independence and Bill of Rights good enough. And yet, who in the hell are we to lecture them about that after 20 years of, tr of, of terror on our side against them? When our Declaration of Independence apparently is meaningless to us. If, if it says that we believe in natural rights, I'm pointing at because it's hanging on my wall right next to my IRS designation here. <laughs> it says that we believe in natural rights. And, and, you know, our war hawks say, well, yeah, that's why we wage war is to protect the natural rights of these people. But how stupid are we if we believe that? They're going to save the women of Afghanistan by killing some of them and ending up leaving the country in the same lurch you found it in. And then, so what's the opposite of that, right? What if, what if George Bush had negotiated in good faith with Mullah Omar and said, round up your Arabs and send them over here, send them to Jordan, who we trust to not disappear them where we can't find them. Send them to Jordan. We'll send it. We'll put them on a plane straight to Virginia and New York and indict them and prosecute them. And then the war on terror is not a war at all. It's a criminal justice matter. And it, the whole thing's settled by New Year's. Mullah Omar hated bin Laden. He'd have turned over bin Laden and the rest of the Al Qaeda guys. No problem. He was happy to do it. But even if you don't buy that, as I show in the book, Fool's Aaron, the special operations forces and the Air Force could have finished killing all of the Al Qaeda guys. All of them were cornered at Tora Bora in December 2001, and Bush let them go. He refused. They had Green Berets in the north in Mazari Sharif, they had Rangers in Kandahar and at Bagram Air Base, and they had 4,000, could have been marching Marines, also down there in Kandahar province under General James Mattis. And all they had to do was get on a helicopter and go and help. And they were refused permission to go and help to seal the border and prevent bin Laden from escaping. The whole war could have been over by 2001. And then what if the Taliban had been in power this whole time? We said, look, you guys didn't do the attack. We know you didn't do the attack. In fact, their ambassador, Walter Kill, had tried to warn us that an attack was coming. They could have said, all right, now here's the thing. We're not going to carpet bomb you, but you know we could, and we're really mad. So how about we'd like to see some concessions on, say, loosening up women's rights even more and better than before compared to the Pashtun Wali Code and compared to your you know, current system which is totally oppressive is horrible right um and then what if we just spent the last 20 years not coercing them with with threats and extortion but just bribing them how about that how about with all the trade and all the aid that we that you guys can eat if you'll make the reforms we'd like to see we love our bill of rights you know what you guys need is a bill of rights like we got and what if we just had Harry Brown up there for 20 years talking about peace and liberty and meaning it instead of George Bush getting up there? And yeah, I don't know how well you guys remember talking about peace and liberty. Oh, yeah. While he waged war yeah. and while he ruined everything, while he got the entire not just 21st century, but the entire millennium off on the wrong foot for everyone, for all of humanity. Absolutely. And it's, it is a tragedy. And speaking of tragedies in your book, which uh, I don't know if anybody wants to download it on um, audible, that's what, how I've been. Uh, that's how I've listened to it. And uh, Scott narrates, he does a great job. There's an incredibly tragic story where he, uh, and I'm going to ask you how many times do you think this has happened where grandfather's holding his little grandson's hand as they're on their way to a wedding, I believe. And then the grandfather mm -hmm. sees a huge white flash and then a loud noise and then he's able to see again and he's still holding his grandson's hand 
and that's all that's there. And I want to know how anybody can justify this sort of thing and not also not expect to create more people who are willing to fight and die uh, fighting this enemy that's killing them from the sky for for apparent for just going to a wedding. I don't know how this is conducive to changing people's uh, hearts and minds. Yeah, it never was. Um, you know how people can justify it is the same old thing for any government program. It's just collateral damage and the ends justify the means and they have some noble goal. And boy, what are you on the side of the Taliban and oppression of women and whatever red herrings? And so these things are unfortunate, Jay, but that's just the cost of doing business. And then they go to sleep on a real nice bed in a real nice house and and start over again tomorrow and it doesn't matter that much to them and and how you know in the war itself stanley mccrystal well your first question was how often does this happen constantly man you know donald trump he wanted out of there famously but then they rolled him and they made him escalate and so even while he was negotiating he massively escalated not just the green berets in the east and the marines in the south but he put the drones and the planes back up in the air and they killed tens of thousands of people every year of his presidency for nothing so i mean how many days are there in a year you know three and a half hundred so you're killing 10 20 30 000 people in a year that means that you're killing grandpas and little kids every day Every single day, Jay, is the answer. And there's nobody to report on 99% of these that take place out in the countryside somewhere. You know, uh, most of them aren't counted at all, just, you know, later estimated. But, uh, you know, when you count how many bombs have been dropped. But, uh, you know, so, I mean, that's the first part. Now, in the war, General McChrystal called this insurgent math. He says, what's 10 minus 2? 10 minus 2 is 20. You know, because every time you kill somebody, you create more enemies. And this is doubly the case when you're killing innocent civilians, when you're killing women and children and grandmothers. I mean, I won't pick on any of y'all specifically or any particular relation, but if you ever had a grandma or an auntie or an uncle die or something, or a parent, God forbid, you think about how bad that hurts. Now, how about some guy on the other side of the planet sitting in a trailer flying a remote control plane because he's too much of a coward to even sit in the cockpit of the plane that he's uh, bombing with killed your mom, your dad, your aunt or uncle or grandma in their garden by tearing their life apart with high explosives, blowing them to bits. You find your auntie's breast hanging in a tree is all that's left of her, right? That's the scenes that these people live through for real. That's what we're doing to them. No wonder when you kill two, you get 20. How could they think it's any other way? And how lucky are we that these people can't figure out a way to attack us here, right? The only way bin Laden, who was not an Afghan, who was a Saudi, and, and his group of Saudis and Egyptians, the only way they were able to attack us was they recruited Egyptian engineering students studying in Germany who were able to get a Western passport and a visa to sneak into the country to hijack our planes in order to crash into our targets. That's all they had. We're lucky that these people are, in fact, stranded on the far side of the planet where they can't reach out and touch us other than in the most obscure circumstances. In fact, this is just like a one-off, right? And, and probably won't happen again. It could. Um, but in 2010, a guy named Faisal Shahzad tried to blow up Times Square. And then it turned out that the reason he tried to blow up Times Square was because even though he was an American naturalized citizen and had a big house, an advanced degree and a high paying job, a big house with a wife. I forgot if he had a kid or not, but he, essentially he's living the American dream. He goes home to Pakistan and he sees the results of a drone strike on a family, an innocent family killed. And so he says to the Pakistani Taliban that we never had a conflict with before. They had never done anything to us. An entirely separate group from the Afghan Taliban volunteered his services to them and they taught him how to make a bomb. And he failed, luckily, in trying to blow up Times Square, but he could have killed innocent women and children. 
And at his elocution, at his trial, he told the judge, the judge said, how you sicko, how could you do this? You could have killed women and children. And he said, oh, yeah, well, the drones that you fly in Pakistan, they kill women and children. You think they don't kill women and children? Nobody cares about them when they die, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is just as simple as your mama taught you when you were a little kid. You just put your shoe on the other foot for a minute. Just pretend that it was the other way around. We're still doing this because they got one good hit on us, 3,000 killed 20 years ago. And now we killed upwards of 2 million people who didn't do it since then. That's how mad we were, apparently. But they're supposed to just sit there and take it and take it and take it and take it. And if they ever fight back, then we say, no, they hate us because we're innocent. They hate us because we believe in Jesus, because we love our mom and because we let our sisters vote in primary elections. What a bunch of crap. You know, if the Saudis, let's say Governor Abbott allowed the Saudis to put a giant military base in San Antonio next to the Alamo and then use that to constantly bomb Mexico for 10 years. Would we care that would it impress us that they had a ticket from Governor Abbott that said it was okay, Or that would mean that we as Texans would consider Governor Abbott as well as the Saudi princelings to be our lethal, deadly enemies. He would be a traitor. And if we had to, believe me, I wouldn't have to do a damn thing because there'd be 50,000 Texans in line ahead of me to hijack a plane and crash it into something important in Riyadh, right? Mm-hmm. They wouldn't, it, no problem, no problem. Uh, and, and without thinking twice either. And in the name of Jesus, if they had to yell, God is great on the way in to convince them that it's fine too, they would. And frankly, Texas ministers would bless them too. go and get them. You know, right simple as that. Simple as that. And speaking of terrible things, uh, and there are, and I, I, I lost count. I've been taking so many notes from the book just because I wanted to ask you about this. So we helped fund the Mujahideen that fought the Soviet invader. And then when I'm listening to your book now, I did, I had no idea this was going on. We made friends with the Afghan communists that were left over in order to fight our enemies. And they ended up torturing Taliban prisoners. And like, there was the drowning in blood incident. Like there was like, we've made friends with the enemy that we tried to defeat 30, 40 years ago. That's right. So this whole thing, go back to Rambo three. Right. We're on the side of the Mujahideen Mm -hmm. fighting against the Soviets. We're trying to lure them in to bleed them to bankruptcy. And once they invaded, they escalated. They kept sending more and more money to these guys. The the two warlords who got the most support from the Americans were a guy named um, uh, uh, Abdul Shah Massoud who it turned out was actually a double agent working for the KGB all along. He's the guy featured in Rambo three, by the way, but turns out he was a double agent working for the reds. And then also Gubaldin Hekmatyar, who has been a problem for the Americans from 2000, say three or four through 2016, when he finally came in from the cold and made a deal with the Kabul government, but his group, his Islami along with, the what's called the Haqqani group under Jalaluddin Haqqani and the Afghan Taliban, his group was the third place, I guess, most deadly force resisting the Americans in this war the last 15 years, you know, 15 of the last 20 years here. Um, he had been the CIA favorite then. And he was, and it, it was because he was known as an absolute sadistic butcher or murderer who would skin people alive and commit the worst sorts of war crimes. And so that was why he was the CIA's boy. Now, the thing of it is that after the Soviet, uh, the Soviet army left in say 89 and 89, the communist regime lasted till about 91 before they finally sacked and killed the guy. They hanged him. His name was Najibullah and they killed him. And then civil war broke out between the Mujahideen. And this is when Gulbuddin Hekmatyar got the name the Butcher of, of Kabul because he essentially just launched artillery shells at the capital city for years and killed like 50,000 people. He couldn't get in, so he just bombed the place from the outside. Um, and so there's these constant power plays and struggles between 
the former Mujahideen leaders like Haqqani, Hekmachar, Masood, and this guy, General Dostum. He had been a general in the communist army, but he ended up allying with Masood because, of course, Masood was the double agent, right? So what you had essentially was the communists were essentially, I think the Tajiks were the leaders of the communist regime mostly. And then they had the alliance, their alliance with the Uzbeks and the Hazaras. And then mostly the Mujahideen anti-communist fighters came from the Pashtun ranks. So in the days of the 1980s, America, Saudi and Pakistan were on the side of the Pashtuns and some of these other groups also fight. And, and they were from different ethnicities too, fighting against the Soviets. But once the Soviets left, then the warlords all started tearing the country apart. And these guys were all just criminals, right? None of them had any national interest whatsoever in mind. And, you know, so they're drug dealers and rapists and the worst kind of criminals. So then by uh, 1995, the, uh, in Kandahar, what happens is some people come to Mullah Omar, who is the leader of the Taliban religious group. That means students. They were, you know, he was like the headmaster of the religious students, essentially. And then a lot of these guys had fought in the war, but a lot of them also were younger and had been raised in the refugee camps in Pakistan during the war. And so they were all essentially under Mullah Omar's authority. And what happened was locals in Kandahar came to Mullah Omar and said, look, the local warlord has kidnapped these girls and boys and is raping them and torturing them. And please go and rescue them. So it's like a scene out of a movie, and this is multiple sources tell the same story the same way with minor variations. But essentially, Mullah Omar gets up and says, all right, let's do it. Rounds up a posse. Everybody grabs their AK-47s and they go to the warlord's house and they save all the kids. And everybody says, wow, will you liberate us from our warlord too, Taliban? And they say, yeah, sure. What the hell? So they go around and they essentially say to all the warlords, you can either join us or we're going to put you up against the wall right now. It's a new day. And America, Bill Clinton's government, along with the Saudis and the Pakistanis supported this. And it wasn't because they cared about who was dying in the Civil War. It was because they wanted the Taliban to take the capital city and to take the whole country so that they could provide security so they could build an oil pipeline from Turkmenistan through Afghanistan and Pakistan to the port of Karachi in order to screw the Russians, right? It's all still about the Cold War. It never ended. And so we want to poke our straws in the Caspian Basin and suck all that oil out in directions where the Russians can't get to it. Same reason Clinton backed the Mujahideen in Chechnya in the war there. At the same time, he was backing Yeltsin and Putin in the war against them too. But anyway, so... Um, in 1996, the Taliban take the capital city. And this is how corrupt Masood and his guys were, how bad life was in Kabul. Here come these guys who are essentially like the most hillbilly type of religious cranks from way out in the countryside. Come like imagine the most red of rednecks from North Carolina seizing Washington, D.C., and imagine the people of Washington, D.C. welcoming them with open arms because anything to get rid of the scum who've been ruling this place lately. Right. That was the situation in Kabul where essentially no one there was the natural constituency of the Taliban. And they welcomed them in anyway, as long as you'll get rid of the rest of these scum for us. So but by the time of. Uh, September 11, things had changed because bin Laden had convinced the Taliban to tell Unical, screw you, you can't build your pipeline. We want to do uh, business with this Brazilian company, Bride or Argentine company, I think it was, Bridas instead. And so this is when the Bush people at the end of Clinton, beginning of Bush and Bush's people had told the Taliban, listen, we'll give you a carpet of gold or a carpet of bombs. It's one or the other. And the Taliban, you know, this was cooking the 9 11 plot was cooking at the same time anyway. And so that, you know, um, the Taliban should have made the deal, I guess. They shouldn't have listened to bin Laden. Um, and so, um, so that was the circumstances in which, you know, the Taliban had taken over the country. But as late as, say, 98, 97, at least. I'm sorry, it's in the book, but I think 97, 98, you have Clinton officials telling Congress that, yes, we want the Taliban to win. 
We don't want a negotiated settlement. We want them to crush the Northern Alliance, which after all, was made up of the communists, was General Dostum and Massoud and all these guys who had been the bad guys in the last war. And so um, they said, yeah, you know what? It'll be a lot like Saudi Arabia. There'll be a lot of Sharia law and a nice oil pipeline. And, and we could live with that. It'll be just fine. And so that was the plan, you know, for a very long time there up until, I guess, the very late Clinton years, maybe maybe the last year of Clinton and then early Bush before the September 11th attack was, you know, the way that they had uh, had had that situation. So what's funny, though, is so you go back and look at it. All this is ancient history now, as Jimmy Carter would say. Right. But at the time of September 11th, Bill Clinton had just helped to install these guys in power five years before. It's not very long at all. Nope. that he had backed their rise. And, you know, in the summer of 2001, Arnaud de Bargrave from the Washington Times, who had known these guys from back in the 1980s when they were the heroes, he went over and he met with Mullah Omar in Pakistan, which even that Mullah Omar traveled to Pakistan to meet with a Washington Times reporter, a white guy with a French name, you know, and he goes over there and he tells him, look, He's seething with rage. He clearly hates bin Laden's guts. He goes, bin Laden is not a religious scholar. He can't issue a fatwa. You have to go to religious school for 12 years and get a certificate from all the right imams and all of this stuff. Who the hell does this guy think he is? He ain't the boss of me. And he wants to say these things about America. He speaks for himself. He doesn't speak for me. And I told him to shut up about that. And bin Laden, he's a chicken bone stuck in my throat. I can neither swallow him nor spit him out. And I quote in the book, and this is important, that there's no one more quotable on this story. You could tell me to go to hell if it was anyone else in the world saying it. OK, but you can't tell me to go to hell because it's Milton Bearden. It's the guy who was the CIA officer who ran Operation Cyclone in the 80s. He's the most authoritative person at the CIA to say this. And this is what he told The Washington Post. The Taliban wanted rid of bin Laden. Mullah Omar hated his guts. They've been negotiating with us since after the Africa embassy attack in 1998. And every time that they try to come up with a clever way to give them over to us, we end up botching it. And he gave an example. He goes, the Taliban come to us and they go, geez, you know what? Bin Laden, he's out falconing and we can't find him. We don't know where he is. <clears throat> In other words, he's outside of our protection. Kill him now. And we'll say, sorry, geez, we would have protected him if he'd stayed home at his farm on the outskirts of Kandahar City where we told him to stay. But he went out to the countryside and the Americans nabbed him. And that's just the way it goes sometimes. That's all they wanted. They were trying to set up a little bit of plausibility, up a little bit of plausible deniability and hand them right over to us to kill. And, and I'll tell you what, you know, um, Michael Shorey, the former head of the CIA's bin Laden unit, who right now is really a right wing crank beyond redemption. But back when had really important things to say about all this, said that when he was the head of the Alex station at CIA, he gave bin, he gave Bill Clinton 10 different chances to kill bin Laden before September 11th. And there was later a CIA, uh, pardon me, a Senate report. I'd have to go back and find this, but I know I asked Scheuer about it in an interview. So it is findable because I refer to it by name and everything. Well, the, the recent Senate report, Scheuer, says 13. And he says, well, I can't confirm 13, but I can confirm 10. And it was situations just like this. In fact, I'm almost certain no, I'm not sure if it was Scheuer who told me this story. I know this is in um, um, Rudy's Ties to a Terror Sheik. He tells the story of um, Althani in uh, Bahrain and their ties to the, um, or in Qatar, and their ties to bin Laden. And um, how at one point um, he, was in the, he was in the country and the hostage rescue team, the FBI, Waco killers, See, this is before the military, the CIA. This was under it was still under the Department of Justice under Bill Clinton. So they sent the hostage rescue team, which is essentially the FBI's special operations team to go and arrest and uh, bin Laden and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. And then but the sheik made them stay the night and then they were gone by the next morning um, and let them go. And then there was another one where they were out falconing and. They were going to kill him with a cruise missile, a, a Tomahawk cruise missile launched from a ship. But Sandy Berger, 
warned a bunch of princelings in Saudi first, and then they made a bunch of phone calls and warned bin Laden. So he was able to get out of the way before the ship was ready to fire and they called it off. And then, and this happened supposedly over and over and over again. In fact, one more, as long as I'm rambling, that's in the book, September 10th, 2001, the night of Australia time, Bill Clinton gives a speech in Australia. And at the end of it, he's just musing, or maybe it was an answer to a question someone asked him. He said the greatest regret of his presidency was that he didn't kill bin Laden, which that's believable, you know, although whose fault was that, right? But anyway, um, he said it was the greatest regret of his presidency, but he said, you know, I had one really good chance to kill him recently, but I would have had to carpet bomb a little town called Kandahar to get him. And I couldn't do that. So I had to call it off. Right. But that's just completely false. Okay. Bin Laden lived on a farm called the Tarnak farm on the outskirts of Kandahar city, which is a giant city, which you would not have to carpet bomb in order to hit one farm. And you know what? I'm almost certain that yes, there were women and children there. They should have sent in a team on the ground with single shot rifles. I don't know. But still, don't tell me you would have had to carpet bomb the whole city in order to get this house, because that's not true. And you think of all the people they've killed since then, the innocent civilians they've killed since then. I mean, I am not saying it's okay, but boy, it would have been a lot less worse than this. And then that was his excuse was this completely hollow excuse. Amazing stuff. Uh, One one last thing I wanted to ask you was uh, regarding like the poppy fields in the book. We uh, you talk about how poppy production was lower before the invasion and has gradually risen. Now that 90 percent of the world, uh, the world supply of heroin comes from Afghanistan. We have this vicious cycle, right, where you have American troops guarding poppy fields and then it's processed and eventually ends up on our shores. And then the DEA is able to prosecute this ridiculous drug war and throw people in cages over a product that starts in Afghanistan that American taxpayers are paying soldiers to guard, essentially. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know if there's ever... The, the feeling that I get from your book is this really isn't going to end, is it? Like, there's too much money involved. There's too much... Uh, there's too many hands in the cookie jar. Uh, I, I don't know how we could see our way out of this. And especially with currently with the heroin problem we have in this country, which is absolutely, I mean, that's it's it's out of control. I mean, we we everybody has some six degrees of Kevin Bacon sort of thing going where they know somebody that has either overdosed or died from heroin abuse. Yeah. Well, all right. So as far as are we ever leaving? Let's put that off for just a second. Remind me if I space out. But as far as the drugs, first of all, I. I believe, although I I haven't looked at this very closely lately, but um, I'm relatively certain that the vast majority of the heroin in the United States is coming from Mexico. And that's, you know, basically a separate issue. But on the other hand, it'd be a lot more expensive and supply would be, uh, you know, a lot less if the those in Latin America had to supply the rest of the old world with heroin, too, and not just the U.S., but. Afghanistan's got the whole rest of the of Eurasia held down for the Mexicans so they can just focus on our markets. So it, it is relevant to the way we live here. I don't mean to dismiss that. It is part of it. Um, and it's also relevant to the way people live, you know, throughout Eurasia as well. Uh, and in, in Afghanistan, for that matter. Uh, Gubaldine Hekmachar, who I mentioned earlier, uh, there's a great article. I referenced this in Fool's Aaron. Um, it's a, a great piece by Alfred McCoy, who originally wrote the politics of heroin about Southeast Asia and the war in Vietnam and all the you know smuggling and all that stuff then. And he wrote a piece about Afghan heroin. We talked about how even going back to the 1980s, that Hekmatyar was partially, you know, in great measure responsible. This one of America's favorite warlords, again, was was greatly responsible for helping convert Afghanistan to essentially a, a heroin only economy. It was never that widely diversified an economy, but there were, I guess, um, I forgot what kind of trees there were, some kind of some kind of uh, grove of trees. I forget if it was olives or or some kind of oranges or apples or what, but 
there, you know, all these groves of trees on the Shamali plain that him and his men all cut down, um, the wars and, uh, you know, all that they had these natural irrigation systems that had been built to, for the raising of crops. And then the Americans destroyed them and built different irrigation systems that ended up just being more useful for growing poppies instead and whatever. Like a lot of this was just an accident of, you know, state department government programs in other people's countries where they don't really know what they're doing. And essentially there's nothing for anyone to do to make any money in Afghanistan other than sell weapons or drugs. And so, you know, they point their finger at the Taliban all day long, but they got four fingers pointed back at themselves the whole time that they accuse the Taliban of selling heroin. We've all seen pictures. Every American, all 300 million Americans have seen pictures of American GIs and or Marines standing around guarding poppy fields. As you said, it's an iconic image. You can't shake it. What the hell are we doing there? These are not, they're not guarding Taliban poppy fields. They're guarding poppy fields for peasant farmers who might support our guy or might support the Taliban. And so what are we supposed to do? And, and of course, if you eradicate all of his drugs, now you're taking away some revenue for the Taliban on the face of it, really, but not really, because you're just driving the price up, right? If you have this massive eradication effort now and, and farmers are getting killed, especially as they did when the DEA went to Afghanistan in this war, and, and, you know, risks are being taken, then the price goes up. And that just means more and more people get involved in the market anyway. And so essentially, you know, just like with the drug war here at home, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. There's no real answer except just to legalize it. And, and of course, you know, think about the position that the farmers are in, where they're just trying to sell something to have some money to buy food with. You know, we're talking about people who are desperately poor people who are just trying to survive. And so we come and crack down on them and drive them straight into the arms of the Taliban. Whereas before they were just paying their taxes because they have to and have no choice, you know? And then we end up saying, all right, Mr. Farmer, well, you're in the militia now because we won't let you be a farmer anymore. And so what good does that do you? None. So you know, the whole thing's just a wreck. As far as the Taliban cracking down on heroin, I'd like to know more about this, but this really rang true to me that that was actually just because they had a massive glut and had these huge warehouses full of heroin in Pakistan. They couldn't get rid of it all. And so they had to like really crack down and have a hardcore drug war in 1999, 2000, just to try to drive the price back up so they could get rid of this stuff. Like it wasn't, it wasn't worth enough for the cost of the transport to distribute it around, you know? Wow. Um, I don't know if that's really true, but it sounded right to me. It's not that the it Taliban are really, you know, these moral, pious characters. They believe in law and order, but they're not above yeah. making billions of dollars and corrupt, you know, corrupt money doing stuff like that. Absolutely. Uh, Christopher, I want to kick it over to you if you have anything that you'd like to ask. Uh, no, no questions in particular, but just uh, something funny I wanted to mention because we had Pete on back in what, November? Pete Canonis. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I just pitched him a couple of softball questions, but I had asked him like, you know, hey, what was like your three top favorite guests on the show? And he had to add the side note like you mean aside from Scott Horton, <laughs> which which cracked me up. But, yeah, it was uh, just wanted to comment on that. That's all. That's cool. Yeah. Pete's a good one. He's our managing yeah. editor at the Institute. Yeah, he's awesome. We wouldn't be the Institute without him. I'll tell you what. That's awesome. He said he is a, he's a wonderful guy. Like he does yeah. so much work for the, for the movement, for the Liberty movement. And I, you know, he was the inspiration behind us starting this podcast specifically. Great. He's, he's, he's wonderful. Angel. I like to hear that. You're the boss angel. Do you have anything that you would like to add? Um, I, I don't have a lot of serious questions. I kind of like to ask fun questions. So hmm. um, what do you like to do in your spare time for fun? I'm a skateboarder. Oh, cool. We got a big ramp now in town so i'm trying to do uh sundays and wednesdays and i'm not quite as good as i was 10 years ago but we're working on it <laughs> that's cool that's excellent do you have anything else angel nope that was it all right uh scott if you wouldn't mind uh your plugs please to make sure that anybody that's listening can find uh your stuff anywhere sure so i'm the director of the libertarian institute and that's me and the legendary sheldon richmond the great pete Kinones. And uh, Kyle Anzalone, who's our news editor and also is the opinion editor of antiwar.com. 
where I am editor in chief or uh, what do you call it? Editorial director of antiwar.com, um, which is the most important project on the internet, uh, bar none. And that's the great Jason Ditz, Dave DeCamp, Eric Garris, Angela Keaton, and Danny Sherson. And we now feature Doug Bondo and Ted Carpenter. Cato's two best guys are now our regular contributors. Ramsey Baroud, the great Palestinian activist, and uh, just tons more great stuff at all the time there at antiwar.com for you. Most important project on the internet. And then I wrote these books back here. What do you see? Uh, Enough Already and Fool's Errand. Um, Enough Already is the brand new one, Time to End the War on Terrorism. That's every war since 79. And then the other one is uh, focused on Afghanistan. Fool's Errand is actually chapter two of Enough Already, but it kind of got out of control and it became a book about Afghanistan. And then I had to start over and do the <laughs> one about all the wars. So that's that. And then, um, oh, I do a show. I've done 5,400 and something interviews and they're all for you. Uh, available in podcast form, MP3 form there at scotthorton.org. And I do, you. I'm, I've been a little bit slow lately, but I usually do between five and 10 a week there if uh, anyone wants to sign up for the podcast feed. Oh, and one more thing I'll tell you. All of my archives, all 5,400 interviews plus are on youtube.com slash Show. And if you go there now and click on the playlists, I've got this, uh, what we're calling the video adaptation of the new book, Enough Already. That's uh, directed by this great guy named uh, Gus Cantavero. And it's basically me sitting in this chair facing that way, explaining the whole book all the way through one day. And um, 14 sections are about five to 10 minutes long each about from Jimmy Carter all the way through getting into this mess and the whole war on terrorism, including Somalia, Libya, Syria, and all the rest of them too. That's fantastic. Well, it was a huge honor for us to have you on this show. Like we're all really big fans. I, I think you do a great job of narrating your book. I mean, it's my daily go to work and I listen to that and I get angry before I go into the office. Um, I I really working on the new one. Uh, There will be an audio book of the new one. It's not quite done yet, but I'm, I'm working on it. Excellent. Well, I mean, you're doing uh, your, your work is so critical and we really appreciate it. And uh, I hope our listeners get a lot out of it and they check out all of your catalog. Thank you so much for joining us on this show. Yes, we really you. appreciate it. Yes. Thank you. Absolutely. For your time. Yeah, absolutely. Thank all of you guys very much for having me. I appreciate it a lot. And anytime and please keep up the good work. All right, guys, that's all we have for today. If you want to get at us, it's use guys at gmail.com or info at useguyspod.com. Thank you very much for your support. And we will talk to you very soon. Bye. Bye.